1: Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It is Wednesday, December 8th. Derek Van Riper, Britt Giroli, Eno Saris here with you on this Wednesday. This is the episode in which we attempt to fix the CBA. If you're watching us on YouTube, it's just right there, just right under me. It just says, let's fix the CBA. We're excited about it. Uh, because there's like a few ways you can talk about what's happening in baseball right now with the lockout you can be a fatalist about it and and talk about how awful the fight is which is awful and it could take a long time or you could actually be more solutions oriented and since it's only a wednesday and we're all in a good mood we're going to take the the latter route we're going to try and be optimists. we're going to try and help fix these problems or at least come to some kind of Estimate as to where some of the biggest sticking points are actually going to be resolved. Now, sometimes the universe gives us a little gift, and this is one of those days because we set this topic up. Uh, well, kind of we talked about it at the end of last week, but I put it on the rundown on Tuesday night. and I woke up on Wednesday morning to a Kent Rosenthal article that was basically, let's fix the CBA, and it was step by step the big issues, and he included some of his solutions. So uh, that kind of works as a, a good outline for this particular topic in a lot of ways. But before we go into Ken's piece and, and put his ideas out there with our own ideas, the thing that that came up at the end of last week that's still blowing my mind, Brit, is the idea that the players have this war chest. And the more I've thought about it, the more I hope and think that it's more for leverage to move negotiations along than a thing that they'd actually want to use. Like, it's a good thing to have, and it gives them some protection, but my hope is that it's just a way of kind of showing the owners, hey, look, you don't need to drag this out. We've got this in our back pocket, so let's actually get this thing going and come together for something that actually works. Now, you know way more about this than I do because I didn't even know it existed at the end of last week. Am I reading what that tool is designed to be correctly? Like, is this the thing that you, you don't really ever want to have to use, but you're willing to use if you need to use it?
2: Well, I think what its main purpose is, is to keep the players together as one. Because as this drags out, guys who are making the minimum versus guys like Max Scherzer, um, you're going to see some dissension, right? And that's what the union knows they can't have. They need all these guys to stay strong, all of them to kind of toe the line. So... I agree with you. They don't want to use this four chest. Scherzer spoke about how they have it. They hope that they can use it on something else down the road, but they made it big and they made sure that it's stocked up so that guys who start to get nervous if we're in January, February about when they're going to get paid next, uh, know that this exists. And so they can feel better, more com- confident, more comfortable trusting this small subcommittee of players and the players union. So I think it helps, like you were saying, but I think its main purpose is to keep the players unionized and keep them unified in one goal. Because we talk about players versus owners, but it's important to remember that a lot of players aren't making the kind of money that these guys at the top or these guys that are on the subcommittee for the union are making. So uh, there's a lot of Uh, differences and opinions just within the players, as I'm sure there are some within the owners, except at the owner level, they're all billionaires. I mean, maybe some have more money than others, but we're really splitting hairs here. Um, This league has so many guys making the minimum that I think they had to do this because they needed to make sure that everybody stood their ground um, if this gets ugly and if this gets late.
3: Yeah, I think the the unity thing cannot be under 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 underestimated because um there's even if even when you look at the different proposals that are put out there and the different languages out there, I think there's a lot of language and proposals that's designed to kind of like try to create fissures you know um when they have something in there when the players have something in there saying uh let's reduce or eliminate uh uh revenue sharing uh that's i think there's a little bit of a that's designed to like let the Yankees do whatever they want but it also is it also puts a wedge between the Yankees and the, Mar- and the Mariners or the Yankees and the Rays when it comes to you know will they all vote the same way will they all think the same way and i think there's other proposals that come from uh from um you know ownership that is that is the same way if there's a proposal about coming to free agency uh at, at 30 or 29 and a half that's something we've heard right um like that is actually designed to speak to the ones that became free agents that's designed to speak to Aaron Judge uh who you know would be a free agent a year earlier but you know how many people get to free agency not that many it's it's less than half uh and so you know i think that um the war chest speaks to the uh, more than half of the players that are on the minimum salary. You know, by my estimation, it was 54%. In 2019, the union said 63%. That's a lot of people who are on the minimum salary. And yes, 500000 is a lot, but, you know, if you sort of bank on the 500,000 and then it's not there, uh, then, you know, getting a, a few thousand to make rent and to maybe pay your local, um, you know, gym that you're, you're working out at or wherever, that sort of deal will be a big deal. So, and it'll keep, it'll keep the rank and file in order. And then the last thing I wanted to say about that is that like the, the, the way that the voting goes, and I've, I've had to confirm this cause I didn't actually know this myself until recently. We are all <laughs> trying to become experts on this stuff. Um, is that uh, the veteran subcommittee and uh, the player reps are the only people that vote on the proposal. And so uh, you basically, you hope that they are communicating well with their players that they represent. You hope that the union is... Is communicating well with everybody and keep them on board but in the end the vote comes down to the veteran subcommittee and uh and the player reps and so this war chest like you said is a way to say to the guys who don't even have like a physical vote in the process to be like hey no we we've got your back um and that's why i think it's so important you see this language even with max scherzer you know he comes out and he says um you know it's it's really important for us to get younger players played better right I think that's amazing. And then some people say, well, it's easy for you to say, you, you know, just signed a huge contract. No, it, you know, it's actually easier for him to say, I made it. So can you, you know, you know, there's it's a lot. It's a lot easier for him to say. And you need the guys who make a ton of money, who are on the veteran subcommittee, who are in the leadership. You need them to
1: care about the minimum guys. And I think sometimes in the past they haven't as much. Right, I, I think there's there's a l- prevailing attitude. I think this is a, in, in all sports in some ways where it's like, well, I went through this, so you can go Alicia through this too. Alger. And That probably applies to minor league pay, right? Like, yes. uh, we we grounded out. We had three roommates. We slept on mattresses on the floor. You know, we rode those bus rides, and now we made it. And it's like, well, at a certain point, you have to realize that cycle will never end if the people who made it through don't acknowledge how terrible it is and then use their power to actually fix it, right? So, I mean, that applies within the major league salary structure, but it also applies to the minor leaguers. And I still feel like the minor league issues are not even really on the table here. Like this, it still feels like those are being cast aside. But for me, like when I think about what's going to be the biggest sticking point of all, I don't know if the minimum salary is actually going to be the thing that hangs this up necessarily. I, I think that's something that the the players are going to get. Like it, it's pretty clear.
3: Every CBA, there's a big jump in minimum salary.
1: Right. So I, I think that's very realistic. Uh, big. I think you in could Ken's article. Ways. <laughs> there is a jump in minimum salary every every CBA. <laughs> yeah. The Ken's idea was like up to 800k.
2: Again, I think people look at that number and say like this is absurd. But the 500k, like I was talking to a guy. Uh, yesterday who was kind of talking about how they get taxed in every single city they play in. Did you guys know that? Yeah. They get entertainer tax in every city they go in. They oh, have agent fees on they top of income tax. On top of regular income tax. Mm. It would be like you it would be like traveling when I traveled as a beat writer and me having to fill out tax forms for every state I went to as a beat writer. Yeah. They so they end up owing more than the average person. Um they have the agent fees they have the clubhouse fees that they have to deal with every year. And then they are in that Really high tax bracket, and most of the time they are sole providers, so that five hundred becomes two hundred very quickly. Still a lot of money, but when you're talking about just being the head of household, because most of the time wives, girlfriends, fiancées can't physically work. Well, you're also their job traveling
3: a lot. Yeah, somebody has to take care of the kids. I'm hyping you. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> thanks, thanks. thanks.
2: I, I need, I need the, I need the support. Uh, <laughs> no, you're, you're just now getting into like not as much money. So eight hundred to me becomes like five hundred, right? So now we're getting in more of. What they should probably be making. Um, and everyone still says, well, this is absurd. Well, look at the sports profits. And, you know, I think you have a story that's going to delve into more of the numbers, right? Um, it hasn't correlated with the profits, right? The minor league salary hasn't gone up as much the as mi- the, the minimum. Sport. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Well, yeah, there's a couple of things I think of. First off, on the tax thing, uh, it's really interesting. There was a piece that came out that said about how the ownership uses their teams uh, as tax havens, basically. And they write off when they when they spend like a billion dollars to buy a team or whatever. They write that off in perpetuity. So Mike, uh, who's it? Balmer. What's his first name? The Clippers owner? Steve Ballmer. Steve Ballmer uh, pays an effective tax under 10%. LeBron James uh paid an effective tax rate last year forty percent uh because he doesn't have you know like a like a team to write off and anyway that's just tax rules but it does have something to do with like you know how these players get get taxed pretty highly the other thing I think of is uh the minimum salary is tied to this is what you were alluding to that the minimum taxes is, is uh, the minimum salaries is tied to the CPI which is uh, the inflation rate so it is supposed to go up with inflation so that means it goes up every year sort of 3% or whatever baseball now compared to the last cba uh has is you know the overall revenues are around 11 billion and in the last cba it was like 7 billion so so baseball profits are like going up at a sort of 40 50% you know uh you know even like you know close to 100% like almost doubling uh whereas you know the minimum is just going up 3% every year so you just see this like you see this big sort of widening of, of the gaps and th- and that's why every cba there's a, a new there's a new minimum the one thing i would say though is that i think it's the most important issue uh in this because 60% of the players deal with this right and and i think it might shift a little bit of the power in terms of would I sign Jed Lowry for next year for one and three to be my DH or to be whatever? Or would I sign, uh, you know, or would I depend on three minor leaguers and be like, one of these guys is going to be as good as Jed Lowry? Well, what if each of those minor leaguers costs a million dollars? Would you pay the one and three to make sure you had it? Or would you take three shots at a million dollar player? See, the math starts to change a little bit. And so I think it will favor some older veterans that are more projectable than sort of taking a shot in the dark on prospects if they're each going to cost a million when they get to the big league. So I do think the minimum matters that way. I think the minimum matters just in paying more than 60% of the, of the, the player pool. Uh, the one thing I would say is I did the math and uh, it's a 200, like if you double the minimum, which no one's really talking about, but let's say you just did that and you made it like a million, it's a $200 million expenditure for the owners. Split thirty ways.
2: Divided by thirty, which is what? Hold on.
3: Right. I mean, it's it, it's doable, but it, it's a bit. It's the biggest not that anyone's talking about.
2: Okay, so it's six point six million per team.
3: Yeah, that's very little, and disproportionately for the cheaper teams.
2: Yeah, but aren't we talking about the how much more money and profits they made, is the four billion dollars? divided sure, by Sure, sure, sure,
3: sure. No, I'm not saying that it's not. I'm saying it's doable and they should do it. And uh, I have a piece coming out tomorrow where there are things they can give the owners that can pay for it. So patches, for example, on the yeah. jersey uh, could be worth $8 million to each team on average. Ding. Boom, you pay for it. <laughs> that worked. Right. <laughs> So we, did, we done. We're, we're done. But uh, the, the one thing that I have in this piece that's coming out tomorrow is I tried to put a dollar sign on the expanded playoffs, on the patches, on the eliminating a year of arbitration, on the NLDH, uh, on the doubling the minimum. And the amazing thing was when I added that all, all those five issues up, it netted out to zero. You'd have to give all <laughs> the money from patches to ownership, which uh, players may not want to do. And uh, there's some assumptions about how much a, uh, a postseason TV uh, uh, game is worth to to, to, the major le- to, to, to baseball. But when I, I did the math as best I could, and it all netted out. Looking
0: for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right.
2: So the one thing I think that they're not going to get is the free agency quicker.
3: No, I agree. I agree with you. You're saying it's a non-starter for owners and it just seems like.
2: I think it's a non-starter for owners. And I also think that players don't realize. And I had this idea and I haven't heard anybody really talk about this. um, Cable subscriptions are down, right? They're going to continue to go down. These RSNs that were once cash cows for these baseball teams are going to lose money. They're going to continue to go down.
3: Sinclair might go bankrupt.
2: That right there is going to affect the money that they can give to free agents. It's going to affect the money that they have for teams. It's just going to affect a lot of things. And I don't think the players really understand the ramifications of that long term. But I know the owners do. Uh, I mean, ESPN, I think, has like 80 million subscribers right now. And they're projected in the next five years to be at 50 million. So we're, we're talking about like a serious decline that we're going to still see. And these RSNs, um, which used to be like, oh, Get your own RSN, now you can print money. Um, it's not going to be the case right now until they figure out some kind of solution. So that's like an important, I think, maybe perspective because we always hear from the player side and I am pro player. But I do think you have to look at it from the other perspective as well. And I thought that was a really important financial thing that's really under discussed.
1: Yeah, there is one big change, though. Like, I am totally with you. Like The Sinclair issue is a big roadblock. It hangs over every sport but it actually might be the kind of thing that pushes baseball or enables the league to finally get around the blackout issues. Like obviously they have more control than they would lead on, but I think it is complicated because those are all individual contracts with those RSNs, right? Like that's so it's a big legal mess to untangle if the RSNs have to go away because Sinclair goes bankrupt. Maybe you start Fresh. Maybe you have a, a better version of MLB TV. Maybe you have a new partner like Amazon swoop in and say, hey, we're in the sports business now. We just got Thursday Night Football. Now we're going to have baseball too. And there's a big pile of money that comes in from Amazon. The other variable that wasn't there at the last CBA, sports betting. It's huge. And it's going to keep growing. It's going to continue to become legal in a greater number of states. That's going to generate a ton of money for the league as well. So I think they can fairly easily offset those those losses or those changes because of revenue streams that weren't previously there. But it's definitely the kind of thing that creates some short term instability or uncertainty on the owner's side that at the very least is is le- it's leveraged at the table somehow, or it's brought into the conversation regardless of how problematic it actually is in the grand scheme of things. I think a lot of again we we see that we saw this in the shortened season the shortened season was the the sky is falling we didn't make as much money the claims of losses right the same kind of thing can happen with the rsns even though we all know we can sit back and go well, but what what about the next 10 years like the next 10 years are still extremely bright as far as the amount of money that you're going to make like i think we're at a better point as far as what the players know and what they've kind of figured out about how everything works to where they they can't lose in this negotiation, the way they've lost in the last two, like it can't be this bad. The free agency thing is interesting because I, I think some of the some of the quotes and letters and things that come out of this, like everything Manfred has released as a statement, is just like it feels like parody. And then people write parody off of it, and then you're like, yeah, this really is pretty bad. Why? Why do they even try to argue at this point that? it's some kind of crisis for the game that players change teams. We love that. What just happened before this lockout, players were going all over the places. We had signings, we had trades. We love signings and trades. Like I think there's this overcorrection sometimes where people are like, "Oh, we just we just want players to stay in one place forever." No, no. We want the stars to stay, like the homegrown stars. If we're a fan of a team, we want those players to stay forever, right? Ray's fans want Wander Franco to be a Ray forever, but that doesn't happen. Even for the the best of the best stars, that hasn't been happening for years. Even Ryan Braun was an outlier in Milwaukee, and if it weren't for that PED suspension, maybe he would have been a dodger for the last few years of his career, right? Maybe his appeal to other teams would have been greater. So I just think it's weird that that the ownership side of this has tried to make players changing teams like some kind of issue when i think more fans like it than dislike it because it creates a lot of excitement the possibility of getting new players making your team better is more exciting than gridlock and everyone just staying in the same place
3: yeah and i I think the only way to keep like Cutch a pirate for longer for as an example is wage suppression you know Uh, I don't I don't think there's a a really great way to keep him on the team. Uh, You know, the whole restricted free agency, that sort of deal. um, I think that only really works in the NBA because they have a cap and because they have a floor. And and I don't know that it necessarily would work in our in our situation, because I I just don't think that like if they went back to the Pirates, you know, I think the Pirates would would never Equal that amount, right? <laughs> like, if the if who who signed the pirate who signed Kutch out of uh, out of, out of
1: uh, the out yeah, of? they traded him to the Giants. That's why he was in the Giants for a little bit, and the, they get traded to the, the Yankees. Yankees, and he signed with the Phillies. Okay,
3: but let's say he just signed with the Phillies. There's no way the Pirates would have matched that. They would have let him go, and yeah. then you're just talking about the sort of qualifying offer nonsense. So I, I I I I I one thing that I do want to react to is it is funny that you. You talk about these Manfred comments and then, you know, Clark says, you know, Clark says drastic. Manfred says extreme. There's all this, you know, sort of we're parsing these uh, public statements from these figures. Uh, The one thing that it does point to that I do get a sense of is that there is vitriol. Like there is there is there's like an emotional gap between these two. And I think the players feel like they need to, to win something. So uh, there's going to be some line drawn in the sand somewhere. I don't know what it'll be. Um, and then I've seen other people say like if they only give a come away with 800 million dollar minimum salary and expanded playoffs that'll be a loss. I don't know, man. That's that's a big jump. That's the biggest jump ever in the in the history of the of the minimum salary. So you know, I think I think I would focus all my efforts on the minimum salary myself.
2: Really? See, I would focus all my efforts on fixing the draft because nothing fixes the competitive integrity of the sport faster than fixing the draft like if if you ask me I think the two biggest things and players have said that these are the two biggest things are the salary and also getting teams to try so Mm. I disagree you know I think if they got those two things that you said they would consider it a failure they Mm. need to fix the competitive integrity of the game they can't just have players make 800 grand and think that everything is fine the sport is fixed now and I thought Ken had a really good point in his article about how okay maybe we don't get rid of revenue sharing because the league won't agree to it and it does it is unfortunate for teams that are using that money and trying but maybe we have stringent rules on how they can use that money right they shouldn't let the orioles pocket 50 million dollars that needs to go directly into payroll right Major you should, you ha- payroll. your payroll
3: should be at least as high as the revenue sharing you got you keep brought in
2: revenue sharing plus the money they make from mlb.com. So now you're talking about pretty much every payroll is 100 million dollars.
3: That that I like that too because you're getting a salary floor without calling it a salary floor.
2: Yes. So I thought that 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 to me those to me are the two biggest things. If the players get that, they should just be like let's shake on it, we're good. You know, like not fight mm-hmm. so much over the free agency stuff. Um, you know, I think if they get them an on salary and they fix Competitive balance somehow, like the integrity of the game, and stop the tanking. I think wouldn't we all feel pretty good about that on this panel?
3: I think that would create also some incentive to to compete because let's say your payroll has to be 100 million. That means you have to buy some free agents, and that means the money you you'll be the money you'll be making comes from the gate and your local TV. when well, local TV might you know is tough to negotiate, but gate now now all of a sudden gate is really more important. Like making. Tickets sold more important is good. Because yeah. that would mean that people would try to be more competitive. Because the only way to reliably get more gate receipts is to actually try and win. That's yeah. <laughs> that's the only yeah. thing we've been able to, to prove. So <laughs>
2: yes.
3: All right. I, I can feel I can dig it. And what I like about that too is that you uh you can throw different proposals at each other, and it's not obvious that they cost anybody money, that they cost the owners more money specifically you know and and it, it could be a wedge issue between the poor and rich owners <laughs> so it's uh it's definitely something you know if you don't do it that way then maybe you do it with draft incentives that's where you started right draft right, incentives yes. mm-hmm. or uh change change the draft pick compensation in uh in the luxury tax implications that so just take the draft pick stuff out you know uh yeah. you know do do find some way to like uh to to Stop tanking. I'm I'm with you. I'm just focused on that. I see that sixty percent on the minimum, and I'm like, that's that's my laser focus.
1: I think the draft, like trying to trying to fix it through the draft, is like it it is part of a bigger solution. I I I don't like that the worst team in the league that isn't trying to put a winning product on the field right now creates the best path for the first overall pick. So whether that's you know a lottery or a different system entirely, where the first non playoff team like. Backing up for a second, expanded playoffs seems like it's almost a certainty at this point. Like I'm, in my mind, I'm operating like we're going to have and 14 teams in the playoffs. So the details and of that is really important be.
3: because of what we're talking about, right? Because if it's right. just everyone's in and you know there's a first round, that sucks. Then everyone's going to try and be an 84 win team. Yes.
1: So you No, there needs to be a big weight on winning your division. Wise. Bar- barely getting in needs to be yes. tough. Yes. Like you need to be on the road entirely when you right. have that That's opening series a and
3: whole home series. Wow. Or I like the idea of the uh of the top wild card choosing their opponent. You know, I like that yeah. sort of stuff. I I love that just from like a,
1: like a schoolyard standpoint where (laughs) it's like, I can't wait to like write that article too. Like who should the, you know, who should they pick? (laughs) Yankees get to the postseason. Like we want the twins because we destroy them every year. And one year the twins are finally going to punch the Yankees back and win one. It's going to be amazing. Right. Like Like, how great great, would it be if you got picked picked picked
3: by the number one wildcard team and you beat them. you it'd be amazing. (laughs) And it's great TV.
2: Like they could do a whole special where they do the selection where they the team, the two wild card teams pick or whatever. And yeah, you're like, yeah, I don't know. It could be fun, but yeah, I think I think the the salary stuff's important, but I think the game has to be better. Like the collective bargaining agreement, they're trying to make the game better each time. In theory, right? They're trying to sweeten the right. deal for each side, but they should try. If we're not going to fix any rules, then we better fix the tanking. And they already said well, they're I- not fixing rules.
3: I, there's a there's a couple things that I think are definitely going to happen this that I don't think most people think would improve the game. So we're already going to be down, which is expanded playoffs and patches on jerseys. Like those are already in. That's already happening.
1: That's going to happen in every. It's, it's, already, it's already happened in the NBA. Yeah. Uh, I think it's it happened in hockey. At least in the preseason, I've seen it in hockey. I've seen it in practice jerseys for the NFL. That's coming everywhere. Yeah. I mean, the the world's sport. Soccer, football. I know, as I it's can't believe it. it, Royals, it is, right, right across, across the, the chest. Yeah. Like, <laughs> if you don't know the crest, you you, you know Yokohama Tire Corporation is Chelsea. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's just embedded in your head that that's that's who they are now, right? So traditionalists out there are screaming right now. Just, they're out walking their dogs. They're in their cars. They're like, what are you guys doing? Look, it's coming. A Mr. Clean Patch or whatever is coming on everybody's jersey. It's going just accept that. That is part of the reality, right? This is a fight about money and to generate more money to keep everybody happy. You need some new ways to make that happen. This is one of them. And if this actually gets us baseball if this actually does raise the minimum salary, if this is the kind of thing that eventually gets more money to the minor leaguers, please put a patch on the jersey. I can see through it. I'll be okay. Trust me. It's not the end of the world. I think the, the other fight here is with the floor and the luxury tax. And I think the luxury tax is a cap. Like It's not called a cap, but it functions as a cap. Let's just say we do have a, a salary floor, however realistic that is. Let's say we have a floor and it's a, it's $100 million per team based on the criteria we were talking about earlier. Right? There are some, some pretty Clear indicators that that's what teams will just have readily available. It goes back into payroll. Do you, if you can't get rid of the luxury tax completely, how much do you want to soften it? How much do you want to let Steve Cohen come in and and just buy all the players he wants? Like from a pro labor standpoint, my mind is great, awesome. Let him run a four hundred million dollar payroll. What do I care? Does that create? as much of a competitive disadvantage as people might fear. Because I would argue that you can spend a whole lot of money and screw it up. There are plenty of teams that run bloated payrolls relative to other teams that don't have on-field success. I'm looking at you, angels, looking right at you. So I, I don't see it as that much of a problem. I think the fear would be you create situations like you have in other leagues, like soccer, like another good example, where... Teams spend like the big, big rich teams spend a fortune and everybody else is trying to play catch up. Maybe you create that scenario, but part of what fixes that is that 14 team playoff. Like if you're putting 14 teams in the playoffs, eventually you're expanding to 32, you're still sitting right around half the teams getting in. Okay. Like, so the Mets, the Dodgers, the Yankees, the Cubs, like those teams spend a lot more than everybody else. Are they going to win a lot more than everybody else? My lean is actually no.
2: Yeah, I agree. I don't. I think you have to raise the luxury tax and, like Ken wrote, get like soften the penalties because you still have revenue sharing. So, to me, you have to you have to do something with that. And as for the floor, it's never going to get agreed upon by the owners, and also the players aren't huge fans of the floor um, because if you look at the salary floor, it doesn't actually incentivize teams to spend. money in a measured way just incentivizes them to sign like one old aging veteran and then still do whatever they want with their roster just to hit the minimum. Um, so the floor actually, um, labor people feel this way too. Doesn't actually incentivize teams to try. I think they have to find other ways to do that. Um, but the luxury tax, you're right. It's a cap. It's absolutely a cap. And there are no, in, I don't have a problem with Steve Cohen or other teams flying through it. Baseball is the best at having different champions over the last, what, like dozen years? So the parity in the game is there. I don't think it's going to go away if you all of a sudden um, make it a little bit uh, less harsh for teams that hit that luxury tax. Because it is now really being treated as like a stop, can't go past this number, right? We see teams do it all the time. I think only two teams went above it this year. Is that right? Dodgers and the Padres?
1: you can't have only two teams spending at that level. That seems way more problematic.
2: Yeah. So I, I agree with you. I think you have to do something there, like maybe get rid of some of the penalties associated with it because it's, it's not making the game better. It's just giving the owners a reason to say, we have to stop here.
1: Mm-hmm. King of waffles. Looks He's like, like looking he is something up on thought. the
2: internet. <laughs>
3: uh, I am just trying to get some numbers about uh, revenue sharing. Um, and how much some certain teams come in. I saw one that said the Pirates took 118 million in in 2018, Uh, but I'm looking at a different piece that says that it seems more plausible about uh, revenue sharing giving like the Rays and the Marlins about 40 million. Do you know how much the MLB.com money is?
2: I think it's around 50 million or it was a few years ago.
3: Okay. So if that's the case, then we're talking about, uh, you know, like maybe a $90 million floor, maybe a hundred million dollar floor for, but it would be for specific teams, but the Orioles are on that list. Uh, the pirates are on that list and, um, uh, they were all in the bottom three last year. So, uh, the pirates spent $34 million last year on payroll. Uh, they
2: that, that should they not be They probably brought
3: in around uh, $40 million in revenue sharing. as According to this, I'm looking at the Captain's Blog uh, piece from 2020. Uh, if they brought in $40 million in revenue sharing plus MLB.com, that means uh, before they sold a single ticket or whatever, they brought in like $60 million or $50 million.
0: Hmm.
1: Yeah. I yeah. hmm. wonder where that money went.
2: Plus their RSN money. Right. Whatever they get there, plus the jersey sales, Orioles, all that.
1: Orioles stuff. at twenty nine
3: million. The Guardians it's at twenty nine million it's last just year. B- oh, this is this year. Let me.
2: It's just like an, an oh, where they're at right now. It's just sort of embarrassing in my mind. Like it, you shouldn't be allowed to own a team if you can't spend a hundred million dollars on your payroll.
1: Right. So- Which in a in a va- in a like in a vacuum, like a standalone statement, it's like wow, that sounds like a lot. Like, no, no, no. Like like read that ProPublica piece that that you know was talking about earlier. Like understand how much money they actually have to work with and it is actually a very small sort of request okay
3: well last year was the pirates were 54 and the orioles were 42
2: still pocketing millions look at the orioles payroll in like 14 you know um they spent a lot of money and so now they're a great example now their payroll's really low and everyone's like well they're rebuilding well that's fine but is this 50 million that they're saving every year is that going to go towards payroll? Are they gonna all of a sudden spend another two hundred million one year? No. They might go up to a hundred million one year.
3: Oh, and you know what's also not gonna happen is ticket I mean, ticket prices might go down just because they're bad and nobody wants to go, but it has nothing to do like paying money, that's a big trope that is out there is that, 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 you know, if the players cost more money, the ticket prices will go up. And I I don't think that's the case. I think that uh the the price of the ticket that you buy to go to a game depends almost entirely on you, on your demographics. Like they've, they've know everything about you and how much they're, they figured out how much you would pay. You know what I mean? So uh, we haven't found any uh, ability to prove that like a high price free agent drives ticket demand. Uh, and so therefore, if there's no link there, then your demand won't change for that ticket. And so it'll only depend on how much money you have, uh, how good the team is, whatever their inputs are. But, you know, I don't think one of their inputs is how expensive the right. players so, are. Y- they're, they're figuring out exactly how much you would spend yes. on a ticket. So
2: in NFL, it's a different beast, but each team gets $252 million for national TV money before anything. So their TV money pays for their salaries. So the tickets, everything else is just gravy. Yeah. Right. Um, so in baseball, um, I know it's crazy. And, you know, they still can't get people to go to FedEx Field to see the Washington football team. Um, so
1: I wouldn't go. You, you couldn't, you could, you could give me free tickets and I wouldn't go. Was, I, I,
2: should, <laughs> I, I do a radio show in DC a couple nights a week and that was the whole debate is so why can't they lower ticket prices? Because it's literally just extra money for them, right? They are not paying for player salaries from your tickets. Right. And it's the same thing in baseball. We just determined that each team gets about 90 to 100 million, gets that money. What about that's just given to them? now if they're spending less than that on their payroll then all that ticket stuff is gravy what about the money the club mm-hmm. generates Are all these clubs gener- operating at losses every year maybe on their taxes but certainly not in the real life so mm-hmm. again your ticket prices these tickets what you're, you're you're not funding player salaries when you go to a game we are not doing that they're already being funded by these revenue sharings
3: that's a, yeah that's another good point yeah Revenue sharing, national TV deal, local TV deal. All right. Most of these teams, yeah, most of these teams don't need the ticket, and I think that makes sense too. If you're running a business, to not depend on the most volatile thing, right? TV money is locked in for ten years at a time. You know, all these all these national sharing deals, they're they're locked in. So you, what you want to do is be near break even before you sell a ticket, and then the profit is how many tickets you sold. I mean, it makes sense from a, a nerd angle, but you know that's that also tells you why the player prices don't really matter to your ticket price.
1: So all of this is to say, so kind of recapping the things that we think we're going to see, the, the likely compromises going through the Ken piece, the luxury tax, we think the tax is going to go up, but it's not going to go away. And maybe the penalties for going into the luxury tax will be less harsh. So more room to operate, good for the players. Uh, less harsh penalties, maybe a more, I guess, a greater appetite in season, especially if you have a contending team to push extra chips in because you're not paying as much of a penalty per dollar for going over. That seems likely to happen to both of you. Okay, as long as it stays in place, yeah, I think you know there there will be changes to the luxury yeah. tax. I agree, and then the the revenue sharing. Can had keep the formula the same, but require recipients to spend a major league payroll. This effectively replaces the the salary floor, right? We're saying that you have this known quantity of, of revenue coming in from TV and MLB.com. And even if it's not written expressly as here's 100 million you have to spend, it's these these things that you're going to get have to go back into player salaries and then other ways teams make money aren't factored into that calculation and people are, you know, players are better off and then you're not committing to an actual number. Is is that how that lands? Do the Rays and the Yankees
3: both like the like both equally like and hate these proposals?
1: Yeah, it's kind of the the sniff test, right, for for teams being on board, right? Do
3: the Rays, so the Rays are like, oh, "Okay, so now I got to spend more money. Thanks." And You've just allowed the Yankees to spend more money.
2: Oh, so the Yankees like it.
3: The Yankees like it.
2: But the, here's
1: the. Th- I think they just like it. I don't think Hal Steinbrenner wants to spend nah, more money either. on payroll because that's, cl- <laughs> that's he's a, a classic, he's a classic he's a classic. My Could excuses go out the window. <laughs> There's as much pressure there to spend as much as you can as there is anywhere, and he doesn't do it.
2: Here's that's the thing: it's like the teams can't really they're fighting over money, right? instance, telling telling teams, you need to use the revenue sharing money for this, they can't really complain about. It's not like costing them money. It's just allocating those funds to what they were meant to do that teams have Mm -hmm. kind of, it was just too broad. It was like they had to somehow improve the organization. So now they're just basically saying, you need to improve the big league team with that money. So to me, it's hard for them to say that this is somehow negatively going to impact their economics when this is money they already have.
1: I think the other question here is how much does tanking and rebuilding hurt you as a team? How much does that hurt your brand? How much does that hurt like from a from the bottom line perspective? Because if you run it lean payroll wise, you're still churning a profit. So it seems like the answer is not that you much. You
3: lose a lot of fans though. And it's hard Do they come back it's hard to get the fans back. You actually have to win for a few years before the fans start yeah. coming back.
1: Right. And then it gets then it gets into a question of how how effective was your rebuild? The the Astros tank to what they are now looks like more of an outlier that doesn't look like a recipe that every organization is going to follow with success there are some teams that tore it down and will stay broken indefinitely
3: I think of the 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 Rangers the Rangers kind of did a little bit of a tank you know at first with with Daniels and then they got to a point where the players came together and then now they're then they took a step back and started over like right like the
1: kids have been a little bit of a Perpetual rebuild. Yeah, what? Well,
2: well, but they had those World Series appearances.
1: Yeah, they're they're a little so, more up and down, I would say. They're not. They weren't just like big drop and then now finally coming out of it. I, th- I mean, I think the Orioles, yeah. for obvious reasons, have followed that Houston model. And is it is it actually going to have a payoff like that? That's the Cubs one was question. really
3: interesting because they got the World Series, but I, I'm not a Cubs fan, so I can't speak for all Cubs fans. But I will say that I'm like that. I'm like. If they hadn't won that World Series, I would be like that was an unsuccessful rebuild.
2: Well, here okay, so here's the main
3: or unsuccessful yeah, tank cycle. The problem
2: now is that tanking doesn't work anymore. I talked to a bunch of people at the GM meetings about this. Um it doesn't work anymore cuz teams don't trade away prospects like they used to. Like they did when the Astros were rebuilding. Mm-hmm. So you can't you can't keep tanking and only get like some good draft picks yourself but unless you supplement that with other people's prospects, so they all come up at the same time to create this good team. Um, It just doesn't happen. So Mm. I believe Jed Hoyer has talked about this. Also,
3: the more people tank, the more people tank, the more people are going for that number one pick. So you're not as likely to get the number one pick if there's five teams tanking. Now all of a sudden you got the five pick, and the five pick is not as good as the number one pick. Like there's a yeah, pretty depending big on big drop the draft, off.
2: but yeah. So tanking just isn't feasible anymore. No. So that's like another reason why they need to fix the draft, in my opinion, is that like clubs are always going to be there's always going to be rebuilding to some extent. You know, like if the Pirates win, they're going to win differently than the Yankees. The way they're going to win, right? But the the tanking cycle um, is not good for the game. It just doesn't work anymore. When was the last tank? We talked about the Astros. That was a while ago now. What was the last really successful tank job that produced like a consistent winner? Everyone points to the Astros. That's it. And they spend now. They got good and spend. Jim Crane doesn't want to rebuild ever again. He said this year at the World Series we're all in a big group that the window is never going to close while I'm here. Like he's not like eager to like some teams are. We win, now we're going to tank and t- and tear it all down again. This was like a one time only tank thing for them.
3: Maybe.
4: I mean it, it looks like they'll let Korea go and so they'll get cheaper but, but they're they'll not try tanking
2: to... and rebuilding.
4: Right, yeah.
1: I got to follow up on something you've said a couple times, Britt. Fixing the draft, like what for? What does that look like to you? Like what? How how do you fix it? I mean, I think it's it's very difficult to just build an entire system effectively. Like if even if you like, are we leveling the playing field in terms of where the top picks go? Are we disincentivizing tanking directly? Like we said earlier. Like what what is your fix for the draft?
2: I think you draft lottery it, but you also way the team who didn't make the playoffs, like the teams who just missed the playoffs, um have better chances to draft higher. I also think you have to give some kind of extra weight to small market teams. Uh when it comes down to it, like if the Rays were on the outside looking in and they were the first team and then the Yankees were there, I think the Rays in some extent maybe get an extra draft pick. I think you have to do something. You can't do away with the small market big market thing. There are still some significant hurdles to winning as a small market team, and they are going to need the draft more than the big market teams. Um, but you have to find a way to get teams to stop the race to the bottom. And I think you do that by a draft lottery that really takes away the whole, well, if we're the worst team, we could just keep picking number one. We can keep getting the Adley Rushmans. Like, that's not a feasible strategy.
3: Hmm. Or it's not good for baseball, at least. And, but the one thing that I don't like about the first one missing is a lot of times it would be like the Yankees, and all of a sudden – Will you incentivize the Yankees to
1: miss the playoffs?
2: Would the would the Yankees fans be bit? happy missing the playoffs to get a draft pick? To get pick?
1: a number not one. Fly. I, well, again, I, I think All we're right. talking about a lottery scenario yes. though, where the first, like the first team that didn't make it has the best chance of getting the first pick, but doesn't necessarily get the first pick. And I think you know, Britt, I think you're saying you want to keep the competitive balance draft picks or even tweak that system to maybe push more in the direction of, of smaller clubs right i mean that that's effectively what you're, what you're yeah, saying
2: that's how i would do it and again like you know i don't think teams that just miss the playoffs their fan bases are going to be comforted by the fact that they now have a high draft pick on a lot of these fan bases they're gonna be like
3: because they they were in the we're winning yeah. cycle they thought you know yeah well i mean i the the way that you put it with the like sort of the lottery ball the, like you get more balls for certain things, like I kind of, i okay. I get that, you know. Like you get more balls if you you get a couple more balls if you're a, a small market team. You you maybe you get an extra ball. Like you can kind of almost treat it like yeah. like that. Like you get a ball for being the top uh, playoff misser. You get a ball if you're revenue sharing. You get an extra ball if you're a revenue sharing team. You know, and then we do descending amount of balls based on worst record. But that the, these little the pink the, the ball themselves like the, just another chance. You know, can then become this. Well, like, how fun would that be to watch?
2: All uh, oh, uh, Rob Manfred like picking out the the ping pong balls, <laughs> reading the team names.
3: And then you got to have Mike Petriello up there explaining why you know <laughs> the Rays got you know eighteen balls yeah. and the you know. <laughs> I mean, I like
1: it. I yeah, need, I need someone with charisma to be in charge of because that that feels. I mean, I like game shows. I I think that's a game show kind of thing. You, you need a you need a charming very charismatic person to pull the ping pong balls.
3: Well, you got to have the commission come up and play the, like, ah, with the, right. You know, sure. Yeah. You, the you could have the monotone got,
1: commission you know. announcement.
3: Then you got to have the nerd being like, well, they got this one for the, the eight, right? <laughs> and they were the first ones out in their revenue sharing. So they got, <laughs> but you do need like the Dicky vital, like doing the yeah. actual
1: tumbling, right?
3: Oh, <laughs> the hype person.
1: Uh, maybe you could get the guy yeah. that does the auctions on uh, storage storage. That's great,
3: baby. The number one pick goes (laughs) to.
1: So, free agency, we think, is gridlocked. Still going to be six years. Can we get it to be tweaked where the BS of holding a player in the minors for 11 days goes away? Can we just like round that off? Like, it's still six years to free agency, but a day equals a year. Yeah. So, Bobby Witt Jr. can come up on opening day if you, for whatever reason, if he weren't ready or if he got hurt in spring training and he came up in August, it's a year. A day equals a year. Right? You, you spend one day in the big leagues, you've, you've reached a year. Can can we tweak it that way if we're going to keep it at six years, or do you think that's a non-starter?
2: I think Ken proposed that, right? I don't know about the issue there. What if you have a prospect who comes up, isn't very good, you send him back down for most of the year, now he's got a year of big league service time? And
3: then you lose a whole year.
1: Yeah. He, he's, he's not getting – I mean, t- time is working against these players. The Peak age is younger than we thought, and if you aren't going to let guys get to free agency – after a shorter duration, I mean, a fewer number, a smaller number of years, at least, at least take away this goofy little game we play. Like a guy who's big league ready should play in the big leagues. That's good for everybody. Yeah. Why I not? I get
2: that, but on the flip side, like I said, what about a guy who comes up isn't very good, then spends the year in the minors because he's not very good? Now he's going to reach.
3: Still got a year. I mean, I think one of the dumbest, one of the dumbest stories I ever wrote was that the. Uh, Rangers were practicing manipulation on Willie Calhoun <laughs> when it turns out
2: it wasn't the that defense good. wasn't yeah. actually that good uh, so <laughs> yeah
3: <laughs> like he kind of needed more time I don't know this leagues, has been what if
2: they made free agency what if they were like okay free agency can be the six years or whatever or x amount of games played which which gets rid of the like manipulation by days I don't know does that make sense like, a guy who has played X amount of games in the big leagues is also a free agent, even if he only had five years of big league service time.
1: So, yeah, you could you could add you could add extra paths to reach it. Like, you have the current system, but you also have faster tracks for guys that are, are playing more. Maybe that could replace Super 2. Like, you could say Super 2 is not actually that effective, but if you are playing regularly over five years, you hit, I don't know, 700 games or whatever that number is for for a hitter and maybe it's a hundred and twenty-five games for a pitcher or something. You gotta, you gotta find some way to balance this out though, because your know, relievers versus starters becomes a different issue, but maybe there is some other way. I just, I, I don't think there's any other sport in the world. Maybe I'm completely blanking somewhere where you wouldn't put your best player on the field as soon as possible. Like that seems fundamentally flawed. You can't tell me that front offices are sitting there like, Yeah, you know, we want to wait 11 days before we use this guy. They do it because they get the guy for the extra year. Take away that carrot. Everyone plays their actual best player when they think that player is ready. I mean, I think that's what it comes back to for me. You're right, Britt. Like, you could be 100% wrong. You could Bobby Witt Jr. could be on the opening day roster, and he could be awful for the first month, and they could have to send him down. At the same time, I don't know if you want to say that he has to be up all year to get a full year of service time because – if they do the up-and-down game and they can do it based on games or do it based on days the way they currently do, it takes them eight years to get the free agency instead of the six that it's supposed to take if they play that game. And I, I just think the, the more we can do to to cut through that clutter and create a system where teams are playing their best players as much as they possibly can, that's generally good for just the well-being of the game, and obviously it's good for the players.
3: I think there's an obvious solution, and I think... I. I think that everyone hates it. So maybe it's an okay solution. <laughs> uh, start your start the service time clock when they're drafted. So obviously the players would have to give a few more years. Well,
2: back. Be six my, the big problem with that is mm. high school versus college guys. Now you're going to impact who they take. Because it takes much longer yeah. for high school guys to come up. So now you're placing the high school guys at a right. disadvantage. So you're changing fundamentally team's draft strategies.
1: Are we making this worse? Yeah.
3: Yeah.
2: This is actually really hard. <laughs>
3: I mean, that's what I think that's what happens. I think what happens is it's like you, there's all these implications and all these things. But that's that. I mean, that just without the details, just that concept of starting service time when you're drafted, I think would be ideal. You know what I mean? In terms of like incentives to getting them to the big leagues
1: because you only have them for a certain amount of time. If they're ready, you want you them to sign days. guys to extensions. though. hold hold on a minute though. Like everybody this is this goes back to people Russian. leaving. Yes. If you draft a player and you've got let's say let's say it's 7 years. We we put the number regardless of whether you're a high school player.
3: What if you make it 9 for high school and 7 for 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 college? They would come out about the same time into free agency yeah, yeah. to like, as the like team
1: that. that drafted that player. You could still extend that player. It's not just this inevitability that the player is going to leave like you st- at this th- that fear of the player yes. is going to leave. It's like agency, extend them. Right, if you right. shorten it up, extend them. If they're good, extend them. Pay them. You want to keep them. They're good players. You want to keep good players. Just do it. I think if you did, I think if you did 9
3: and 7, um the the average college player uh you know, uh gets drafted at like 21, 22, right? 21 would be a free agent around thirty. It's too late. And may may play more often. You'd have some extra arbitration years and those arbitration years pay okay. They don't they, they pay a lot better than the minimum. So if they only had three years minimum, maybe a lot of those three years minimum would be replacing minor league years when they're making like twenty thousand. They'd obviously
1: suddenly making seven hundred. Anything you do with right? the draft. I think the owners would anything like you this. do with the
2: draft is crazy because like so okay, so say you fill out your draft. And then the the late round picks teams are just taking high school guys instead of college guys because they want the extra. Yes.
3: Because they have them for nine.
2: So maybe the creme de la creme guys, the the college guys who are really ready will still go because they're like, oh, we're not worried about that. He's going to be ready in a couple of years. Uh,
3: But now you're sending a bunch of high schoolers to make $20,000 a year in Modesto or whatever.
2: The issue is, is like, so as you guys know, I did that big story about the trade. Like, should there be a deadline? There shouldn't be for all these different reasons. And I think it was, um, it was Bloom who said, no matter what rule you do, you have to remember that there's 30 really competitive GMs in free offices that are going to find loopholes. Yeah, loopholes. Poking remember, holes like, we're, we're kind <laughs> of smart. These people are really smart. They're going to find people. As soon as the CBA yeah. comes out, there's just going to be groups of people in think tanks wondering how they can make this CBA work for them. So I don't know. We sit here and we throw ideas out yeah. that seem fine, but then you wonder what the ramifications are.
3: And then even really smart people like might not consider what happens like three or four years down the line, you know? Like they're they're are unintended. What happens side if you draft the college
2: Tommy guy, surgery? you know, and he needs Tommy John surgery? Now you're now you're real. Now you're maybe not gonna draft that guy at all because now he's wasting those years of the eligibility clock is ticking. What if a guy needs two Tommy Johns? Mm.
3: So any college player with any injury, yeah. Work, like, all what of if sudden, he needs two Tommy John surgeries?
2: Is he gonna just end up being a free agent, even though he's barely had any time in the mi- like minor leagues?
3: Yeah, it would
1: incentivize them to figure out the injury thing too, right?
2: I mean, I mean what can you do about Tommy John?
1: Yeah, yeah. We're, right. we're creating more of that problem in the current system, which is you know really unfortunate. But anything that gets players to free agency faster is good for the players, right? Good for labor. Like the, the sooner you hit the open market, the better. And I think, and a third rail for the. And yeah, I just think they would be like, nope, we can't do that. I mean, their 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 public proposals go the opposite way. Oh no, they they're not going to be free agents until they're thirty. Get out of here with that. Like, th- think about that contract that Whit Merrifield signed a couple years ago. He signed that because he had no leverage. He wasn't going to see free agency for four or five more years. The time that he signed it, and he was already in his late twenties. That's a horrible situation. You don't want players to end up there. If he had got to the big leagues at 24 or 25 or 22 or 23, if he got there faster, like, I mean, again, this is, mm-hmm. this is a total like straw man sort of argument, but it just, that that's a pretty extreme example, but that, that's a bad outcome for a player. It's mm-hmm. better than most players who come in as late as he did. That being said, it's not a good outcome overall. One thing I was surprised about though, I keep coming back to this.
3: The minimum is so big for me because when I looked at how many people were affected by change of the minimum, it was 54%. When I looked at how many people were affected uh, by axing the last year of arbitration and making them free agents in that, in that year, it was 54, mm. which is 5%. Yeah.
2: That's why I think it's kind of a, it's not a silly argument. It's a legitimate argument by them. But it's also like a waste of time and energy, in my opinion, because it's like, the 1%, right? It's like fighting for the top 1%. They already, these people are already going to, I mean, what percent of them, you know, are going to eventually become free agents? Probably pretty high, right? If they make it that far, they're probably. If they
3: make the third, yeah, if they make it the, the third year, year but yeah. I, only 54 last year. <laughs> like, if it, yeah, not that if many.
1: Right. Well, we, so yeah, there's like, a lot of paths. There's like, there's extensions. There are non tenders. there's all these different paths. Yeah. So those guys, yes,
3: your point is those guys would get paid yeah. anyway. Yes. When I look through that, that's very interesting because the 54 that I look through, I would say about 50 of them w- will go on to to be like legitimate free agents. Yeah. There's like four like relievers that made a million dollars in their last year and are kind of injured and you don't know if they'll get another deal. There was a few of those. Um, but I think even, you know, I would count Heath. Hem- I think Heath Henry was like that where he's like a you know third or fourth year arbitration made a million dollars. I think he'll get another deal. So, I don't know. Like, there were, it was, it was, it was mostly guys who make free agent anyway. So, um, I, I like, I'm just, I'm laser focused on the minimum. (laughs) Man, the, 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 in the NBA, 3% of the NBA is on the minimum. Yeah. In the NHL, it's like, it's like 18%. Yeah. So, no, I
2: agree. I think it's, I think that, and trying to incentivize competition, in my mind, are the two biggies. And if the players get those, then they just, kind of quite while they're
3: ahead yeah because if they're if they like if they keep attacking arbitration and and the owners just keep saying it's ridiculous then like a lot of those you know last year if they could cut a year of the minimum now that would be a big deal because there's cascading effects right if you only had two years of the minimum and then you start getting into arbitration that that's a big deal but um i think that would be i don't think that's that might fight. be worth fighting yeah. for though.
1: That might that might be one of the bigger sticking points is yeah, okay, the con- the years of control, you still get six, but it's 2 and 4 instead of 3 and 3 for everyone, not just for the super two players. Cuz then you start doing better a lot faster. Like that Yeah. Hmm. And I do think anything that puts some pressure on teams to make a decision sooner about a long-term deal that's going to open up more opportunities for players as well. But most of those deals seem like pretty team friendly. Yeah, but if, if a player yeah. hits the open market, there are more bidders looming, right? So it's going to incentivize a better offer. You're you're a little closer, right? You're doing if you're doing better along the way, you can possibly wait that extra year before hitting free agency. So I think that does bring the quality of those long-term extensions up a little bit. But there's also a competitive balance aspect to this, right? If you do cut the minimum salary year,
3: Uh, What I found was among the team, among the players that get to the third year of arbitration, the top half in spenders, right, had an average of sort of three to four per team. Right. And then uh, the bottom 10 or so had an average of maybe less than zero, like less than one. Yeah. Like somewhere between zero and one. Yeah. So if you cut that, that means they're going to be trading Andrew McCutcheon faster.
2: Yes. That was going to be my, my counterpoint too, and also like our team's going to want to go even younger because okay, the zero to two guys are cheap. Once they hit that, phone.
3: yeah, they'll still they'll still focus in on the zero to two, they'll right? Still on and on if it's guys. like, and if it, if they keep it down to like five hundred thousand or six hundred thousand, then six hundred thousand the first two years. In the third year, uh, he's going to jump already to millions and millions, and then in the fourth year, you know, like so you can't even the rays would just start, you know, start teams that are all rookies which they to do anyway.
1: I mean, in a, in a perfect <laughs> yeah. scenario, which is utopian, and we're not going to get there, you, you're arbitration eligible once you're in the big leagues. Like There's a minimum salary when you arrive, but then now you're going to arbitration. You're eligible for that right away. So when you come up as a 21-year-old rookie and you almost win the MVP award, oh, guess what? You're going to get paid $20 million in arbitration next year. And eventually that system after a few years goes away and they have to extend you. At least then,
3: I think that's a little bit like other sports, right? Like, if you think about the rookie
1: contract scale,
3: you come in, if you're a first pick, you get a decent amount of money in other teams. In other Here's leagues.
2: the issue with that, though. Arbitration, the money never goes down. So say you have that MVP year and you make all that money, and then you're not very good. Right. Teams are stuck paying you around that amount. That's the thing with arbitration, is that these guys are always making more money, even if they have worse years.
1: Right. This is, this is why so ownership would be opposed to That is a to
2: little you. too... Yeah, I would be. I, I think that's a crazy idea. That's a little too like teams can't. Team, all of a sudden, now the race can't afford Wander, Wander Franco because he's good.
1: They can't afford him. That's the whole point. Like that's.
2: But under your system, he gets paid from the jump. So them being smart enough to draft him and and stuff, all that goes away. The whole point of being a good drafting team is you can have young, cheap talent. So under your system, they can't do that anymore.
1: But the whole point of a drafting system should be getting the best players, and the whole point of any system of, of compensating people for work should be paying the best people the most money like that that's the yes. that's the ultimate goal again it's utopian it's it's not going to happen quite like that but if you if, if you think about this from the the big picture perspective who should get paid in the long run right the, the young we young players should get paid while they while they can get paid right like juan Soto should be a top 10 player based on salary right now and he's not that's that's just how it should be. And instead we're trying to play this game where is he gonna get the extension? Is he gonna reach free agency and, and get the first five hundred million dollar deal? Like we, we play these sorts of games, but the goal ultimately should be how do we get him compensated like the player he is faster? That to me is yeah. the bigger problem that they're probably trying to solve or that, should try to solve. Is. But I don't know I don't think they're gonna get anywhere near this utopian thing that I'm throwing out there.
2: No, I agree with that. But paying them from the jump, I think all of a sudden now you have teams that just can't afford to be good ever. Like there goes the Rays.
3: Yeah, I'm trying to think now of other sports. So like, you know, how do you win in Milwaukee? Well, you get Giannis, right? It doesn't matter how much you pay Giannis because there's a salary cap. Right. And so now you just need to. Rearrange the the chairs around Giannis because you have got yourself a superstar. Yes. So if, if the Nationals had Soto and they were basketball, everyone would have to pay the pay the same amount, but they'd be ahead of everybody because they had they got Soto. Yes. And it wouldn't matter how much they paid Soto; it's just they got him.
2: But you would need a cap. So now, uh, under the, the, this so. utopian system Derek wants, you would need a salary
3: cap.
1: You have it. You have the luxury tax. I think so. you, you've you've gotten a. But you cap. need a
2: real actual salary cap so that. I mean, with a
3: floor, probably too, so,
2: so that it it's yeah. That would be the only way. That's the way these other sports do it. That's the other way. Also, in the NBA, you need like one or two superstars to be a good team. Baseball doesn't work like that. Right. And baseball also yeah. has a much bigger draft than anyone else. They're paying millions to these bonus kids that are in ABLE and Double A AA and Triple. So like the money mm-hmm. is just allocated a little differently.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The structure of the sport is stupid. <laughs> that is that is what this conversation has led me to believe. This was supposed to be like twenty five minutes of the episode, and it turned into the entire episode. And
3: I feel like there could be more. I mean, the the <laughs> I think it's I think it's fascinating. I don't like it uh, as much as talking about baseball, but it is talking about how, how like what have we talked about in this? How do you win at baseball? Uh, you know, what, what are the structures, what are the incentives to these rules that we're discussing? What do the rules cost to the players? What do the rules cost, the rule changes cost to the owners? I mean, I think it is fascinating stuff. and I think there's more to, to come, honestly, like, I, I, hopefully, uh, the piece that I have coming out this week will engender some more discussion and we can, we can, I, I, I think it's okay. Like, what do you guys think? Was that, it was, it wasn't pulling teeth, was it?
2: No, it went for an hour. We never even got to any other topics. I was going to talk about the Mets and the A's manager stuff, um, um, but we can save that for another time. Um, they didn't; neither of them have hired a manager, so that's fine. But finally, like I realized two days ago or yesterday, that there were no candidates have been released for the A's. So I spent all day working up a list and finally got a, a little bit of a list together. I think they're going to hire. Like, and it's
3: mostly Katsui. mostly internal, right?
2: Mostly internal. I think katse is going to be the guy once they lost their bench coach. San Diego Christensen, is that how you say it?
3: You know, mm-hmm. um, one thing that's uh, kind of interesting about the A's is when I did that. Uh, oh, we haven't written that piece yet, <laughs> uh, but uh, I looked at uh, for this piece that's coming up uh, about uh, you know the best job in baseball. When I was looking doing some research for that, um, I looked at uh, average tenure uh, by position and by organization, and the A's I think they had the highest average tenure of any role. You know, in their organization, uh, as an organization, so they keep their guys. Like, you know, the people like Darren Bush has been with the organization for like fifteen years.
2: Yeah.
3: Uh, Scott Emerson, their pitching coach, has been with the organization for like thirteen years. Oh. So I think that is an that's already a, a big sort of check mark for the internal candidates, which are Darren Bush, Mark Kotze, and w- w- was there another internal? Uh, candidate yes, know?
2: it was their bullpen coach. Because Bush is their hitting coach, right? Yeah. Uh let me check my Twitter feed. Over like a Joe Espada <laughs> and like a, uh what is it Matt Quattaro, right? With Tampa Bay, the bench coach. Who was right. one of the guys who I reported is going to interview. Well,
3: Espada and Quattaro come up every For year a lot of opens, and yeah. I'm surprised they haven't gotten an offer. I am you know, I put too. I put Espada in one of my pieces I think 3 years ago. Uh and <laughs> and everybody who works
1: with him in Houston says Espada is Why amazing. does it feel like Mark Kotze already is the new manager of the A's? Like it's just see it like that just makes yeah. sense in my head. Like A's manager Mark Kotze. yeah, okay, that, that I works.
2: I think so too. Uh, Marcus Jensen is the other one, and who's I think he with? I, Oakland. I think he's their bullpen. Uh,
3: oh, Jensen, okay,
2: right? Is he bullpen or something? Mm. Will Venable is another one, the Red Sox bench coach, who's interviewing.
3: Oh, I love him. Uh, I put him. I put job. him on my list, but he he gets interviews, but I don't. You know, I haven't heard of him as a finalist ever.
2: Yeah, yeah, and then I mean, and Aspada, I think would be great. Um, it just the Mets to me just scream like we don't need a first time manager after they had Vicki Callaway and um, Luis Rojas that didn't work out.
1: Right. No, I, I mean I think that that makes sense. From a one line I wasn't sure about in your piece was
3: uh, about well y- you said that the Mets have made the effort to uh, become among the high among the best teams in analytics or whatever. Um, I just don't know if they're there yet. So yeah. I don't know. I don't know how, what that means. Is that if you're not really the most analytical team. Maybe you don't get a manager that's all about analytics. Stuff.
2: Well, they have, they you know have 26 people. get
3: kind of an old school manager. They have
2: 26 people. They do. So to me, are, are you just going to pay 26 people to do nothing? Like, no, of course not. Right. I think, you know, one of the big things about Buck is people think he's not analytical. Somebody actually texted me yesterday. That's known him forever. That said back in 1985, Buck was asking for the stat pack, uh, from House sports that had to get faxed over. 20 pages of stats. The guy like loves info, which I also find to be true. I think the knocks on him Mm -hmm. and analytics aren't entirely fair when the Orioles didn't have an analytics department. There was nobody to ignore. I would love to see him in that. Now, do I know he's going to embrace them? No, I'm not sure. Do I know? I don't think anyone is sure. But I think it's really unfair to say that he didn't embrace them in Baltimore when they literally had no department. They had like one singular analyst.
3: And one thing that I think is really important uh, is either giving uh, people in that role autonomy or the appearance of autonomy. <laughs> and so uh, I think that in his, I think in this case, like Showalter sort of brings with himself uh, autonomy. You know what I mean? <laughs> like it's yeah. like this is the guy the, the, you know. Like I, I can't go talk to Wilpon around. Hopefully I I can't go complain to Cohen around Bucks. You know around Buck. If I do, Buck will tear me a new one, right? <laughs> and that's that's a that's one of the biggest things that I had uh, in the piece about AJ Preller was that like him having a direct line to all these people under the people he'd hired creates this like oh I can just go talk to AJ if you know I don't like what what Tingler's telling me. I, I think there might be something too like putting Showalter and been like, no, you talk to Showalter. You <laughs> the buck stops here, literally. <laughs>
1: Yes.
2: Well, i sorry. I think we made Derek 20 minutes late for his meeting. So uh, that's sorry.
1: already that's out. That's not happening. I'm i I have I have declined the invite, and uh, the show has gone on without me there. So this show can go on a bit longer if you want. Do you want to talk about some non CBA stuff? I had other questions. I had I had mailbag questions we could answer if you guys want to hang around for a bit.
3: No, let's we, we we've been gone for a while. Let's let's keep those for next week. Let's see it. Mailbag. See what what sort of new news comes. Sparkling up and maybe some more CBA. Well if thing. I said that
1: the question you sent us was on the rundown for Wednesday, I lied accidentally, not by design, so that is now on the rundown for Monday. Next Wednesday or next meant. Wednesday. Next they just Wednesday. roll over. That's that's the that's the trick. <laughs> yeah. That's the good thing about a rundown. Sometimes you could just roll it over. To the next day. Uh, if you want to keep reading about the CBA and everything else going on in sports, get a subscription to The Athletic, 33% off the first year at slash rates and barrels. Check out that Ken Rosenthal piece that we were talking about. Check out Britt's piece uh, about Buck Showalter and the fit with the Mets and Look, uh, I think this is um, this is what we're going to get for news for a while managerial stuff, coaching changes, and minor league deals. So, uh, questions are definitely welcomed. You can send those at barrels at athletic.com. If you prefer emails on Twitter, she's at Britt underscore Giroli. He is at Enosaris, and I am at Derek Van Riper. If you're still watching us on YouTube after nearly 70 minutes of CBA talk, you are a <laughs> saint please be sure to barrel up on like button that is going to do it for this episode of rates and barrels. We are back with you on Monday.
3: Thanks for listening.